Welcome to the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. In this series, we'll bring you 12 of the best talks from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime. This episode is called Ports. My name is Fationa Medini, and I am the director of the Southeastern Europe Observatory of the Global Initiative. I will have the pleasure to moderate in the next uh, 75 minutes these panels that focus on ports. Uh, and they are used as a crucial entry point, in fact, not only for the illicit goods, uh, for the illicit goods throughout the world, but also for illicit ones. It is, in fact, uh, estimated that today around 80% of all goods that are traded wild world are shipped by sea, most of it in containers, entering so in ports. On the other hand, in the ports throughout the world, uh, the biggest seizures of drugs, cigarettes, and other illicit goods have taken place. Despite this big role that ports have, there is surprisingly little research out there about illicit goods entering in ports, uh, and the issue itself seems to be overlooked. It is believed that this, uh, this gap in the research comes from the complex environment in which port operates, and also from lack of transparency of port authorities. The game becomes also more complicated in the moment when some of the key ports in the world are managed by companies of other countries, like China, United Arab Emirates, and many more. In order to shed more lights on the challenges, but also opportunities on researching illicit flows coming through ports, I have the pleasure of having in this uh, panel, Ms. Anna Sergi. She's a professor of criminology and organized crime at the University of Access in the UK. Uh, I have also Mr. Ruggiero Scaturo. He's an analyst and the author of the Porthole Report that was published this year by the Global Initiative. I have also with me uh, Ms. Christina Merhauser. She's an analyst and program manager at Global Initiative. Welcome all. I want to remind everyone attending this panel that at, at the end of it, uh, of the presentations, we are going to have around 25 or 30 minutes for questions and, and answers. So feel free and type in any questions that you might have for our panelists in the Q&A box, or just raise your hands and I will give you the floor to do so. So I would uh, like to kick off with Anna, uh, that has started to analyze ports uh, around five years ago. First, her research was focused in the ports of the north of the world. Uh, and then she has uh, she, she 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 came to the to analyze the ports in the in the South Europe. Uh, my question to Anna, in fact, is going to be: What are some things that you have learned from this experience, and how it was this transition? What is different uh, in issues concerning and vulnerabilities concerning ports in the north of the world and in the south of it? So, Anna, over to you. Thank you, Fationa, and thanks everyone. Um, Okay, so um, I'm going to talk for less than 10 minutes, hopefully uh, trying to answer these questions. Uh, so first of all, my research around ports, uh, as Fatiana has mentioned, I have been um, looking at ports since 2018, uh, but obviously in the middle there was a pandemic, so things went a little bit uh, off track. Uh, so these are the ports I have visited, and when I say visited, I mean uh, I've done um, uh, field work in it uh, and analyze trafficking through it. And my research was about organized crime in ports, but not just trafficking, uh, also corruption and other forms. Uh, you'll see there that there is um, 
um, uh, yellow <laughs> port, which is Piraeus, which is the one uh, that I'm going to touch a little bit more upon today, not just in this session, but also in a session in two hours or three hours, I forgot. And it's also what brought me to uh, the global initiative. So um, as Fationa has already mentioned, there's not that much out there. Um, a lot of the research that has been done was done by colleagues um, uh, early on, so some pioneering work from Damien Zeitsch in, uh, in the mid 2000s, looking at cocaine and, uh, um, and uh, Colombia and the port or the Dutch ports, uh, then Yarineski and then a number of other, but really we can count them on a, <laughs> on a, on a hand. Um, so my focus, I'm a criminologist, so my focus was about policing, it was about crime control. So that's how I approached um, the importation side of the north of the world and those ports in the north. I've published quite extensively, but you'll see in this in this slide uh, the report portholes that Ruggero will gonna, is going to talk about, because it was in that in that occasion last year uh, that I was in, I got involved um, by let's say discussing methodologies and discussing what how to research ports and organized crime in ports. Um, with the Global Initiative and with Rogero and Walter specifically uh, for this uh, project and to which I contributed uh, with the case of Piraeus. Now, the best thing about ports is ports, really. I mean, they are um, some amazing uh, pieces of uh, infrastructure and land. So I've enjoyed this research very much. And just to show you another picture, I promise I don't work for MSC. I don't know why there are so many MSC pictures. Uh, maybe that's another question. That's Piraeus. And that was um, obviously um, for the research I mentioned. So what did I learn um, in the north of the world is um, basically the differences between global and local economic circuits when it comes to ports. So ports are at the core in the north of the world of the global trading networks and the global production network as well. They are um, propellers of global supply chains and at the same time they are um, let's say, uh, locations where logistic activities and cluster of production start from. So for those of you who are a little bit knowledgeable about the, how ports work, you might know or you might remember that uh, behind the port, there is always a dry port, uh, sometimes more than one, which is um, basically where all the logistic activities happen, but sometimes also cluster of production. So when we look at ports, we can't um, forget where we are at so the fact that my ports, my first ports, were in the north of the world meant looking at certain types of economic um, regimes, specifically um, capitalist regimes, um, and how does that shape the territorial and national institutional framework. And obviously different models of capitalism, I don't want to go into much details for that, create certain path dependencies We've seen it with ports, apart from crime, we've seen it what happens when something like the Evergreen gets stuck in the in the Suez Canal, or we've seen the supply chain problems um, during the pandemic uh, or during, during the Ukraine war. So obviously there is a path dependency of the whole world um, on ports, um, and this very much affects different places depending on which model of capitalism um, instit is institutionalized in those frameworks. When it comes to organized crime, uh, on the importation side, um, organized crime is conditioned by ports. It's not the other way around. They can't choose uh, most of the things we attribute them to choose. There is a condition of portionism, uh, which depends on the success of trade, 
whether they are trading something licit or illicit. Um, so sometimes uh, we assume that organized crime group can make certain decisions um, based on their own com convenience, but really it is about um, the resilience of a certain shipment route, whether or not there is a route that connects two different ports and whether or not that route is um, resilient and will ensure the longevity of the illicit trade. So to give you an example with Piraeus, um, we had a very clear um, boost uh, in the cocaine trade in Piraeus because of a new route that was established uh, between the port of Guayaquil in Ecuador and Piraeus directly uh, before touching Rotterdam. So that obviously moves to Piraeus an awful lot of stuff that went to Rotterdam and then goes to from Piraeus to Rotterdam on a feeder. But obviously the container are better dealt with in Piraeus. So this changes quite a bit of the capacity of organized crime group. So the capacity of criminal networks uh, to adapt to abrupt changes, obviously, is very different. We have ports in the north where um, organized crime groups might uh, be more able to, um, let's say, organize the trafficking, but then they need co cooperation and coordination when it comes to um, handling the logistics. One case above all is the UK, where obviously the trafficking uh, happens uh, from um, mostly from Europe. And when it comes through uh, British ports, it, it is handled uh, basically elsewhere and not in the UK itself. Um, different from Piraeus, for example, where the um, criminal networks are way more adapt to abrupt changes. The Balkan route is there to essentially support a certain type of logistics already and is actually what prompts the groups to use the Piraeus in the first place. Um, the ability of local and global actors to enter certain businesses. Obviously, uh, we found cases in the north of the world, in Montreal uh, or New York City, where the port workforce has been um, has developed, has been developing around extra fo forms of extra legal governance. The stories of the port of New York are, uh, and, the, and the mob, let's say the mob, are famous, but obviously uh, these need to be taken um, in the context of today. Um, while in, in other ports of the world, there is a different types of informality that do not lead to those type of extra legal governance, but might lead to more uh, distributed form of governance where port workers might support organized crime uh, without being, you know, um, compelled to do so or intimidated into doing so. Um, and then last but not least, uh, the resources and capabilities of law enforcement. Obviously, this is something that we have to consider. Uh, port security is increasing. That does not mean that crime cross-border is decreasing. Actually, quite the opposite. Port security in the north of the world definitely displaces crime, and it is displacing it to the south of the world by founding counterintuitive routes. Um, so this is part of our lesson learned. And then I'm going to leave you with this um, food for thought. Illicit trafficking is different from criminal governance in ports. They both uh, might be pursued by different groups. This is what we found from the North and the South. Port security is not about organized crime, but mostly about displacement and safety. And this is something in, in, the, in the South of the world is felt a lot different than in the North. Uh, and what the Piraeus and the GI talk study add to the rest of my research? Definitely, definitely the Balkan route. So the focus on the, um, on the movement and the logistics. 
uh, a lot of reflection on counterintuitive paths of drug trade, which I'm going to talk about in the next uh, panel as well. And obviously, different type of policing and security challenges in a different security milieu, which is the one of Greece within Europe, but also next to the Balkans. And I'm going to stop here. I hope I was in time, more or less, between my 50 minutes. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, over to you, Fationa. Uh, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, Anna, for your presentation, but also for the support that you have given to the global initiative in researching organized crime in the southeastern Europe uh, ports. Uh, in fact, there are some comments that uh, already are in, and then when we finish all the presentations, I will give you the the I will give you the space uh, to take the floor and and also comment and also uh, do your uh, do your remark and and also. Uh, you, you have the chance to, to pose directly questions uh, to, to the panelists. Uh, in fact, uh, Ruggero Scatura, uh, my colleague at the Global Initiative that we have today with us, have been one of the uh, authors of the Porthole uh, report uh, that it was published uh, during the summer of this year. And it was, in fact, uh, one of the very first reports that uh, try to shed more light and to explore uh, the maritime rule, uh, route in, in the in the south uh, in the south of, of Europe, Ruggiero is going to present right now to bring us some of the of the findings, but also conclusions uh, of of this very important uh, study. Ruggiero, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, as I said uh, briefly uh, about myself, I'm an analyst at the Global Initiative. I specifically work in the observatory of the uh, south, uh, south, focusing on southeastern Europe and. Um, so um, to give you a little bit of background uh, information, given the news coming from uh, North uh, European ports, uh, so Rotterdam, Antwerp, all these ports have been under the uh, analysis. Uh, we and also given also the the, mm, the involvement sometimes of Western Balkan criminal networks in this police operation, we actually started looking uh, at uh, at the region and uh, and had a look actually at what was going on. Uh, these, as you can see here displayed in the, the map, are all customs and police operations in our regional ports. So seizures of uh, um, illicit substances uh, that were hidden in, in containers. So after looking at the quantities uh, seized and also analyzing police operations in general and police reports, um, we then realized actually how important uh, ports and specifically here um, container terminals are in the illicit flows to and through our region of reference and so decided basically to, to develop this organized crime and corruption uh, risk assessment of, uh, of the ports that you can see here identified. Now, before uh, getting to this final list of the case studies, uh, plus the Danube that my colleague Christina is going gonna, is gonna to discuss uh, right after me. Um, so before coming up with this final list, you can see ports listed uh, under, uh, under, under the flags. Uh, we actually have conducted a preliminary uh, assessment study on more than 20 uh, ports in the in the region with the goal of selecting exactly this final list. So the analysis was based on four main criteria that we then combined. First of all, we looked at the port ownership. So we assessed whether the port uh, was either public or private. And then it was also the case that the ports were all actually both uh, private and then public, for example, in the case of in the case of bar. Then we also looked at the size of the port, meaning uh, um, 
we had a look at the trade volume and specifically the number of containers which are handled per year. So the number of TU, 20 foot equivalent units. Then we also wanted to assess the relevance of the role that the port plays from a commercial perspective by looking at the connectivity of the port, not only from a maritime perspective, so meaning to how many other ports, a specific port under analysis was connected, but also uh, from a land infrastructure perspective, one meaning if uh, the port was then connected via land to specific other uh, infrastructure, railroads, uh, train station, free trade zone, uh, dry ports, uh, highways, and so on and so forth. And also we wanted to, add, uh, as a fourth criterion, we wanted also to factor in the sort of uh, criminological element. So we had a look at the history of seizures of illicit goods uh, in container terminals. So we basically here excluded also all those uh, um, uh, seizures that were actually taking place outside the container terminal, so in passenger terminal and so on. So as one of the results uh, of the study and the field work we have conducted, um, we also wanted to give our own understanding and categorization of regional port, also from a technological perspective, meaning based on how and also why actually illicit trade manifest in, uh, in, in port premises. As you can see here, there are three main categories of ports, the trade giants, um, the crime magnets, and the safe havens. Um, here, before getting into the details of each category, I also wanted to stress here that uh, these categories are not exclusive, not independent from each other, actually. And actually, the decategorization is also not, uh, so to say, uh, engraved in stone, because it just reflects, it is the outcome of the uh, study that we have conducted uh, between uh, November 2021 and February 2022, meaning that it might be that over then the months uh, that came after it, it might also be that the specific changes either in the security level uh, provided by law enforcement authorities or maybe specific enlargements, for instance, of the commercial area of the port. It might be that now, nowadays, uh, port, uh, for example, Constanza, let's say, would actually better fit the trade giants and, and vice versa. Um, now, this said, as you can see, Piraeus, and I'm not going to um, say much because uh, it's been already pretty much addressed by also by Anna, uh, it is the only trade giant, and this has to do definitely, of course, with the high level of throughputs, especially after the acquisition of Costco. And as a huge port in general with millions of containers, uh, Piraeus uh, attracts, in a way, many uh, different illicit substances coming from a very big as well variety of, of sources. In fact, Piraeus, also in the narrative of the media in general, doesn't really characterize uh, for any particular um, drug seized. Uh, is not the port of cocaine, is not the port of cigarettes, is not the port of uh, heroin, it's actually the port of many uh, of, of these. Um, from a communogenic perspective, then in general, uh, large ports, and Piraeus is one of these, have a very complex and multi-stakeholder security system in place, and which in a way make it sometimes uh, also rather complex to keep up with the fast and, and large stream of containers. Um, Costanza, Copper, Rieca, Ploch, and Thessaloniki fall instead into the crime magnet uh, category. Uh, these ports actually do not have great uh, throughputs uh, uh, and are not particularly large also in terms of size. And yet their uh, geographical location, which is often a transport intersection, make them particularly important for both national and also uh, international uh, international trade. Take, for instance, the role that played by the Port of Copper for landlocked countries um, based uh, companies, uh, for example, Austria and Hungary, or Ploce for the Bosnian market, as well as Thessaloniki for North Macedonia and Western Bulgaria. Now, for the same reasons uh, which attract 
legit interest of business companies that want to have an access to uh, to seaborne uh, transport criminal network of especially of course not just but especially land all countries actually are particularly attracted to this port and hence the magnet uh, definition in fact we have actually observed the presence of for instance of serbs operating in both riek and costanza or for instance north macedonian based criminal networks operating in thessaloniki and so on and so forth the last category is safe havens, and in this category there are uh, Bar, Durres, uh, and, uh, and Varna. Uh, by safe havens, uh, we mean facilities, support so uh, in general, ports premises that for their specific uh, characteristics are particularly exposed to criminal activity. And in the context uh, of our analysis, uh, we have observed actually two main uh, aspects that strongly, in a way, characterize this port. First of all, the presence of organized crime groups traditionally operating in the city uh, close or where actually the port is, is located, with also the possibility, it's actually uh, the most important thing, uh, the possibility to access the port thanks to legit businesses. Sometimes, for instance, in the case of Durres, we have observed that uh, arrested members of a local power, powerful clan were actually, uh, at the time of being arrested, they were found in possession also of uh, business of uh, badges uh, that would let them inside the port uh, for example because they were operating logistics companies or they were actually also involved in the fisheries and so on and uh, the second aspect the second uh, say uh, factor is also the systemic lack of security and pervasive corruption and also money laundering schemes that we have observed particularly in the in the in the, when assessing the board of management of the port of the port of varna and sometimes it's actually up to the point that it suggests some sort of like ports, uh, ports capture. So it's literally in the hand of criminal consortium. Now, very briefly here, this is just some of the international drug flows, actually illicit good flows uh, that we have uh, identified during this study. We started, of course, on the seizures and also and built uh, these vectors going uh, backwards. You can see, uh, of course, cocaine coming from uh, Latin American ports, both in the Pacific and the Atlantic, going not only to Western Europe, but also to our region of reference. We have cigarettes traditionally being uh, shipped from Chinese ports as well as uh, ports of the Emirates. And then, of course, we have heroin that is produced in Afghanistan and it reaches our region either through the Gulf of Aden, Djibouti, Suez, and then up, or actually uh, across land through Iran and Turkey, and then accessing uh, our region uh, through the ports of Varna and, and Constanza. This is just a close up of basically a more detailed map, of course, with our original reference uh, um, zoomed. Uh, the only detail that I wish here to, to highlight is the fact that we have identified actually in the heroin route, as you can see, there is the one, the yellow one that crosses the Black Sea. This is the, the one that I was referring to before, but there is actually an additional one that wasn't present in the previous, in the previous slide. So heroin being shipped from the southern coast of Turkey, Mersin and Iskenderun mainly, that circumnavigates the Balkan Peninsula and enter uh, the region, but also European Union, so Western Europe at one of its northern Adriatic ports, which is uh, in fact copper. And hence actually here, it's, uh, this is where also the, the, the title of our reports uh, is uh, originates, so uh, exploring the maritime Balkan routes because uh, traditionally, the Balkan route is associated with, of course, with land. So from, uh, from Turkey across Bulgaria, Serbia going northwest. Now, this is a visual that we are particularly uh, proud of. Uh, in a way, it summarizes all the consideration that we have collected when visiting the ports. It consists of a made-up port, of course, with components, though, which are rather uh, um, common in many of the ports that we have uh, analyzed. 
And to each number uh, components item uh, um, corresponds, of course, a specific vulnerability that we have identified. And uh, you can find also all the uh, specific descriptions in the dedicated section of, of the report. Very briefly here, I might talk about the scanners. Uh, of course, there are mobile and fixed scanners. Uh, mobile ones are probably the best because they can be brought everywhere in the port. But in the region, we have observed that most of them are actually fixed. And in a specific case, again, the port of Durres, I'm sorry if there's any uh, uh, local here, but uh, we have observed, for instance, that uh, the fixed scanners were located rather far away from the loading zone of the container terminal. And the usually heavily loaded trucks uh, um, would need uh, up to 20 minutes to get there, also going in between, uh, I would say, remote areas also of the ports, also in between containers piled up, all areas which are not covered also by CCTV cameras, so spaces that offer, in a way, time and space to, uh, to potential offenders to tamper with, uh, with the container. Uh, very briefly, we had a look also at the uh, concealment methods. We have identified a, a number of methods to, to hide basically uh, the drugs and in general illicit goods inside containers. There's many that are, for example, the most common, the most commonly identified in the region is the hide and seek, which basically consists of replacing uh, goods, uh, for example, tropical fruits, let's say a box of banana, just to refer to the most common one. Uh, the most common fruits, basically taking out of the box some 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 bananas and then replacing and filling them uh, with uh, with um, with cocaine illicit goods in general. There are other methods we've identified. For instance, the rip on rip off, which is basically breaking up uh, the breaking open the the, the 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 container, taking out some box carrying legit goods and replacing them with drugs or illicit substances in general, and then basically reclosing it and put a, a fake uh, custom seal. Um, but of course, going moving forward, also criminal networks are also in a way uh, trying to always identify uh, sophisticated methods, uh, more sophisticated methods over the time. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Ruggiero, for your presentation and sharing with us uh, these important findings, but also these cool graphics. Um, uh, it is uh, interesting, in fact, that be because you spoke about some issues that some ports in South, uh, Southeast Europe have with scanners. Uh, but I just want to share something uh, uh, that I learned when I was a few uh, weeks ago in Ecuador, and especially in Guayaquil, which is the biggest uh, port uh, city of this country. Uh, and uh, while interviewing uh, uh, somebody from the port authority, I just learned that out of the six ports in Ecuador, uh, in, um, only in one of them, there was actually a scanner. Uh, so, of course, like, I mean, there are endless problem um, and 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 also I think that some of the uh, comments here also also mentioned the fact that in fact the the ports in the south of the world are also big contributors to this uh, to these uh, illicit goods that they later on comes uh, in the in the part of the world and and this is why this is a very complicated issues uh, in, in order in order not just to, to, to study but also also to tackle. Very often when we speak about ports, instantly uh, what we think are uh, seaports, uh, but we often forget the importance of the river uh, ports as well. Uh, when starting researching criminality in the ports of the Southeastern Europe, we realize uh, that uh, in fact, uh, the Danube river ports had a very big role. Uh, and uh, and uh, there were many cases of, uh, of uh, illicit goods being found uh, in these ports, 
Uh, and what was more shocking, it was that in fact uh, the the most uh, the most seizures were done by accident. Uh, my colleague uh, Christina Merhauser, she she was working closely, in fact, with uh, Ruggiero and Anna for this report. Uh, but she had a special focus on the on the ports on the Danube River. Uh, so, Christina, over to you to tell us a little bit more about vulnerabilities and really what is happening in in the in the Danube ports. Thank you very much, Fationa. Um, thanks for the introduction and for the invitation to join this panel and speak a little bit more about the Danube. And um, yeah, so I was thinking that after sort of listening to Anna um, speaking about the role of ports globally and then Ruggiero really focusing on um, maritime container ports in Southeastern Europe, that I would speak a little bit more about the Danube, its ports, but also its role for smuggling in Southeastern Europe more broadly. I think there are several key differences to the seaports in Southeastern Europe that uh, Rogero um, outlined, but I think it complements the, the bigger picture um, of the role of ports and organized crime in the region. Actually, um, I wanted to start quickly by um, looking at the at research linked between rivers and organized crime globally. Um, and it appears that there's very little research done into the role of rivers and natural geography in general. A review of academic literature that a colleague of mine conducted has provided limited results. We think that he actually identified a gap in research around the world. Um, that's quite surprising given that rivers uh, provide ideal conditions for smuggling and illicit trade. Rivers are 23% uh, of the world's international boundaries. They connect urban trading centers and therefore uh, also criminal markets. And they can often be accessed at remote locations. These remote locations are also difficult uh, to access. They're also under policed and provide opportunities for organized criminal groups. It's actually uh, complicated to police uh, um, rivers throughout their length. The Danube um, specifically is Europe's second largest river, connecting 10 countries from Germany to the Black Sea. It acts as a border river between Bulgaria and Romania or Serbia and Romania, to mention just examples. Uh, only its first 170 kilometers are navigable by larger ocean ships, um, but the Danube um, hosts more than 96 um, ports, which are mostly accessed by barges and um, passenger boats. And it links to the Rhine uh, Main waterway, building a connection between the port of Hamburg and the port of Constanza through the heart of Europe, really. In our research, we found that there's been very little attention on the Danube. Um, water level uh, fluctuations make it difficult to transport, um, especially uh, perishable goods. Um, in contrast to some of the uh, seaports that Ruggiero was talking about, um, that where investment in ports and infrastructure has been really improving over uh, the past couple of years, investment um, in infrastructure in the Danube port continues to be slow, making it often unattractive for uh, businesses. There are few uh, connections to train tracks, for example, or highways, making it difficult to move the cargo. And there are few uh, container ships, but as I mentioned, um, goods are mostly transported in barges. Um, the, the goods are mostly fertilizer, iron ore, and similar goods. And uh, there only appear to be a limited number of um, 
shipping companies and those that are active um, are reported to know each other well, which is also quite unique along the river. Despite um, the, the lack of intention and actually uh, the, the limited number of goods and, and uh, companies uh, active along the Danube, um, there seems to be a free flow for smuggling activities. Um, there is no integrated security management along um, the Danube, there's um, a security concept in the Danube Commission, but there appears to be little uh, operational cooperation. And as Fationa also mentioned in her introduction, seizures appear to happen by accident. Um, here on the map, we've put a couple of these examples of drug seizures that were recorded um, along the Danube. For example, in 2006, more than a ton of cannabis was discovered in Vienna or in March 2019, more than a ton of cocaine capsized in the Danube Delta. Another um, incident was in, in November uh, 2021, where more than uh, 57 million uh, untaxed cigarettes um, were seized on a Ukrainian barge in Hungary during a routine inspection. And yeah, so... Um, the, the fact that goods are moved in barges and not in, in containers also makes it quite difficult to uh, check uh, and uh, control the ship. In many cases, in order to really perform a thorough check, you would have to unload the cargo, which is both time consuming and um, actually logistically challenging or even impossible because the infrastructure is not available. Um, and uh, some of the, the people that we spoke to last year um, admitted that um, practically everything can be transported in barges because um, only papers or seals are being reviewed. So yeah, just to, to conclude, um, I wanted to highlight some of the key findings and takeaways that we had. Um, and that is um, that really there's been very limited attention on the Danube and that capacity to control the river appears to be weak. Um, there are limited uh, joint law enforcement operations um, and those that are um, are quite isolated. But focus on, on the Danube should not only be put on smuggling and, and trafficking operations, but um, illicit activity also includes uh, such things as fuel theft, um, uh, smuggling of migrants or even piracy. Um, because from uh, 2007 to 2008, more than 40 vessels were attacked by organized criminal groups in Bulgaria and Serbia, not uh, to steal the cargo, but also the equipment of the ships, forcing shipping companies to hire security firms. We believe that there is quite a high potential and risk that the Danube is used more broadly to smuggle goods. The um, incident that I was talking about before, the 1.3 tons of uh, cocaine seizure in the Danube Delta, was likely not the first time that the criminal group used this route to uh, transport cocaine. And um, on the way forward, we think that um, it might also be important to keep an eye out for waste smuggling. There's um, evidence that this is happening um, already through Black Sea ports and its interconnectedness, interconnectedness with the Danube uh, deserves closer attention. Ports along the Danube might also serve as crime magnets, um, places that uh, Rogero was talking about would really attract criminality because of their vulnerable governance, uh, geographical position and lack of law enforcement attention. Um, but more information and research are needed into the topic to confirm this. And um, 
yeah, the Danube might also be particularly important at the moment, and it's the border river from Romania to re Ukraine and the role that it can potentially play for organized crime um, and the displacement uh, since the beginning of the war. So I'll stop here and um, back to you, Fatiana. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christina, for your presentation. It's it's really interesting one because, as I said, like the 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 rivers, uh, uh, the river ports in Danube, they are overlooked. And now with the with the with the war in Ukraine, also this takes another uh, another importance uh, because of the smuggling that might occur. Uh, one question, in fact, that we have comes from Jennifer Salahab, uh, and I think it's a very interesting one. Uh, she asked about uh, the role of Steve Dovers or the long uh, shoremen uh, in facilitating um, organized crime operation at ports. Um, so I don't know uh, which from the panelists want to take the floor. Anna, yes, over to you. I can go on this just so that I can then leave the other more difficult ones to preserve. Uh, okay, so Steve Dors and Longshoremen have long been associated with corruption in ports, right? So that's what we um, often see, uh, and or sometimes mostly the news that tell, you know, um, especially I'm just thinking about Italy a few days ago, there have been over 35 people arrested, 14 of which were port workers in Gioia Tauro. So the, the situation is not that um, applicable everywhere, but there are a few points that I would like to raise in terms of longshoremen and port workers more generally and illicit trade. First of all, um, the job of port workers has been historically, um, specifically uh, intergenerational. So it's a job that is often uh, passed on by grandfather to father to son, a heavily masculine job for reasons that have to do with the actual type of job that is done, the perception of risk, associated physical risk and safety. So this creates a little bit of a silos community, an enclave of community that in some occasion has, has led also to um, reciprocal immunity from time to time. There have been many instances, I'm thinking of the port of Melbourne in the 80s, New York uh, before that, um, Liverpool, for example, where dock workers were found to have created um, a system in place whereby they would just protect one another in the basically uh, criminal activities. But more recently, I think things are a little bit more confused in the sense that you do have um, corruption, of course. You do have, uh, as research has also shown us since the 2000, um, some port workers who want to be involved. You have also port workers who are intimidated into getting involved or who get involved because others are involved and therefore they feel like the sense of immunity is reciprocal. But more crucially, because of the nature of trade, and we are talking here about, I'm specifically talking here about massive seaports, right? So seaports like the Giants one, the Piraeus, Montreal, New York, uh, you don't actually need um, the, any illicit commodity to be taken on the actual terminal. You 
it's actually much better for the criminal group if the commodity just goes through undetected. So the role of the port worker there is to share the know-how and to sell the know-how and to sell his eyes on the actual terminal to see essentially to explain and to make sure that the people on the other side know what is going on and how the terminal works and whether or not something is moving strangely. We saw in some cases um, port workers having the ability to uh, facilitate the speed, the speedness, the velocity in which a container leaves the port. So these kind of things are a little bit more um, specific and contextual, depending on each port. So we can't really assume. Plus, um, more and more, we are seeing different type of payments and different type of rewards when it comes to port workers. So it's not just about getting corrupted and getting money. It's about getting uh, drugs sometimes and then entering the drug trade or being in the drug trade in another way. It's about different types of uh, career rewards. So it's a lot more complex and it's very much about the context as well. Thanks, Anam. Uh, but if, if I may yes. add on this, um, just to, to elaborate on this, it is in fact, uh, uh, especially when in the context of, uh, uh, sorry, so in the context of, uh, of also understanding the role of longshore men, I would say that, uh, that their role is definitely important in that sense that Anna has just explained, but also uh, this is actually why uh, we have extended, in a way, our 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 analysis and our also assessment also of all those uh, places that in a way also connected to the port. And here, in fact, I'm talking about all those employees that work, for instance, in wholesale markets. If you have a container which uh, is coming to the port and then has to go direct to the wholesale market because certain bags of fruits have to be taken and are actually uh, destined for the for the local market, these. These are all considerations have to be um, taken in, in, into account. Um, so it's not just about longshoremen, but also all those workers that in a way contribute to the supply chain of, of transport of goods. Okay, uh, thanks Ruggiero. Uh, in fact, we have another, another questions from uh, Antonio Sampaio. Uh, Sampaio. Uh, sorry for the pronunciation. It's not always easy to pronounce uh, names uh, from across the world. Uh, but uh, but yeah, we're, we are trying. Um, in fact, uh, Antonio has three questions in one. I'm going to, to read those loud and uh, uh, please feel free, any of the panelists, uh, to take uh, to take some of these questions. How does organized crime through ports relate to urban insecurity governance? Uh, do OC groups choose cities that present opportunities for territorial control, corruption, where they have a presence? Uh, and the third question is, does transnational trafficking through ports affect the urban security? Anna? I, I go first, so it's always easy when you go first. Uh, it's a fantastic question, and I, um, knowing where Anton is coming from in terms of research makes a lot of sense. Um, this is part of my research, actually, to try and understand the relationship of the city port, essentially in the port city, which is not the same in every um, place. So the question is to understand what Antonio is asking, uh, to what extent organized crime group who have a presence in the territory are also able to use or will want to be able to use the port for their own um, business. And we re really hear uh, risk to be taken um, 
from those cases in the world that are actually that actually constitute a minority. So it's a minority of cases where you can have an organized crime group in a city uh, acting out on control and territorial control through corruption within the port or through hiring practices within the port um, and using that for transnational activities. It's actually very, very specific. And obviously the obvious case here is the one of Gioia Tauro, the, port in Calabria, where the, Ndrang the, the Ndrangheta is clans, uh, the local clans have heavily invested in and then invested in the um, uh, hiring practices to the point of bankrupting the port and eventually also invested in the illicit trade uh, of cocaine, which benefits the clan on the other side. But this is actually um, an exception. We do see, however, that there is um, also, for example, in the south of the world, that was recently in Cartagena, um, visiting the port. You know, Cartagena is starting a project uh, with some colleagues there. And what we could see there is that, especially in the past, um, it wasn't just about willing to settle in a specific area because that area had a port that was eventually interesting from a trafficking perspective. Uh, but also it was um, kind of a more organic um, situation where um, the groups had already settled there because that place being a, a port hub and a trade hub also meant being able to trade more. So it's the port that drives the organized crime group, not the other way around. The organized crime group, as I said before, are conditioned by opportunities. They can't just pick and choose most of the time, especially when there is someone else already there in terms of organized crime. And this does affect urban security, even if not in a direct way. To finish off my comments, um, I did engage with a project on urban security in Piraeus to see whether Piraeus has felt the um, increasing volume of trade in the port, also in the city, whether the city has become unsafe, the city of Piraeus, the municipality of Piraeus, not Athens, has become unsafe because of the port. And the answer is no. The answer is no. However, when we look at urban security beyond the street and in a sort of like um, community engineering, then we might change our idea. But I guess I don't want to go too much into details on that. But Antonio, if you are interested, you know where to find me and we can discuss it more. Thanks, Anna. Ruggiero, Christina, do you have something to add on Antonio's questions? Um, just that uh, from... Um, um evidence-based actually answer is that the only scenario in which we have observed uh, something similar is definitely the port, uh, the port of Durres. And in general, uh, all those ports that fall into um, the category that was referring to the safe heavens, these are the ports that for one reason or another fall inside, again, the area of influence of a given specific organized current groups and particularly in Durres, we have observed definitely a strong link uh, between uh, the activities of the, the illicit activities in the ports and also in general the sense of uh, of insecurity in the surroundings also given the, the strong role that, Dura, that the port plays for uh, for for the city as such thanks Rogero. christina maybe you want to add something i can just add a little bit actually from uh, the port of Koper, um that i've been also involved in researching 
And um, there, the, the port of Koper, we've identified really as sort of the beating heart um, of the area. Everything seems to be evolving around the port in one way or another. Um, the, the, the amount of jobs it creates um, and services and products for the Slovenian economy. But at the same time, it's um, actually very well connected to uh, the other markets, um, not in Slovenia itself, but also to Italy, um, it's um, uh, it's well connected to Austria, Hungary, etc. So um, it's um, the organized crime um, is also moving goods through the um, through the port very quickly, um, and it's um, it's very much connected uh, not to to local organized crime, but to um, the regional economy. And so, yeah. Thanks, Christian. Um, we have another question, in fact, from the anonymous attendee. Probably somebody has forgot to, to register with their name. Uh, but in fact, it's, it's quite interesting questions concerning the role of ports as key instruments within the globalization of crime. Uh, the question is, which are nowadays the most important issues and challenges that policymakers have to deal with? Which are the most active port, uh, ports to these concerns? Concern. Maybe we just follow the tradition. We start with Anna, and then I like this tradition. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. Um, right. So I think so. Ports uh, and the port system, the port economy, actually, is the most uh, liberal economy form of liberal economy that we have is the capitalism at its purest form with less and less uh, controls with overarching system of coordination but essentially it is the purest form of capitalism so in that sense for all the literature that looks at uh, globalization and crime being a product of capitalism essentially of radical capitalism ports are essential means to that so the port economy, and especially in a specific time of the port economy, which is the advent of containerization, which happened around the 70s, which essentially meant that uh, you didn't have to have that many people working port and unpacking um, things from the ship. You could have ships uh, moving in tonnages and a new, a new measure, a new unit measure had to be created for the amount of volume of things that could be transported then obviously it means it's, it's the essence of globalization is the interconnectedness in, uh, of communication, of economics, uh, finance market, and ports themselves are more connected to one another than they are to their cities. To, again, give you an example from um, uh, an obvious example, the port of Gioia Tauro is way more connected to Genova than it is to the city of Rosarno, which is behind it. So the, the ways in which ports communicate with each other is globalized in itself. So the most important issues and challenges, um, the problem is that ports cannot be, I mean, they can, they can be harmonized, the policies for countering crime, but that is an harmonization that has to come voluntarily. There is no way in which uh, the international community can legislate on uh, ports around the world. And there is no way either in which we can have a one size fits all. We do have, and we haven't mentioned it today, but we do have um, several maritime security international tools. We do have um, actually security uh, tools and the ISPS code, which is a security tool that came after 9-11, which is supposed to harmonize security on the port terminal and make sure that there is 
same similar language. Most ports have have to adopt that for their international, uh, let's say, um, uh, because they, they are adhering to an international tools. However, the ways in which they actually, are in practice, these uh, codes are actually applied, um, there is a lot of scope for informality and gray area. So I think the problem is that we still, still have extremely national maritime um, regulation in uh, uh, the most unnational, the most global of, a port of economics. So it's absolutely um, unbelievable to me how we don't have European uh, legislation on this, at least, <laughs> you know, for regions. Um, but the, the real issue here is that um, you do have some ports that are more active than others. The US uh, overall is extremely active at the point of actually sending people to check on ports abroad to actually have container controls abroad if something is coming into the into the US. But this only creates what in criminology we call um, criminogenic asymmetries. If someone does too much and someone does not enough, then you have a problem. Okay, Christina? No, just very quickly, um, I wanted to uh, add to something that Anna mentioned, because we've also observed the, um, along the Danube sort of, uh, the interconnectedness between Austria and Germany, for example, was much between the ports and the agencies involved was much better than between um, Austria and um, some of the Western Balkan countries. So we've um, identified that there's definitely a lot of scope for improvement. And as Anna mentioned, it very much depends on the individual case and the agency involved um, on the country involved within the EU. Much, there's much better cooperation than um, outside of EU countries. Thanks, Christina. And the questions, in fact, they keep coming. It seems that there's a lot of interest on ports, and this is why more research probably is needed in this regard. Uh, we have two questions from Marina in the, in the chat box. She asks, uh, when you talk about police controls, are those ones additional to the orange channel and the red channel controls? Um, and the second question is uh, about the methodology of the research. Is uh, yours uh, quality research or does it involve any kind of quantity data managing? And I think that uh, here, Marina, you are referring to the, to the portholes reports, uh, the analyzing of the ports in Southeastern Europe. Anna? Uh, yes. So um, police control in ports is done nationally and locally. So each port will have uh, several layers of control of that we call police, but essentially means crime control. And these are at the local level. Sometimes you have uh, special squads from the local police, municipal police or state police, depending where you are, um, like um, which is which might have a special unit for the port. Sometimes you have um, task forces between local police and let's say national police or federal police, depending again where you are. Um, or and some other times you might have a top bottom approach where the federal police or the national police might want to have special units for the ports sent from elsewhere, which does not touches on the city at all. So that's police. Uh, there is no such a thing as uh, police in the sense of international policing, which is another problem. Um, there might be in some cases some uh, roles given to coast guards. 
um, which in, in some countries more than other, like in Greece, uh, they do have some elements of anti-drug systems. Uh, but generally speaking, police means essentially making analyzing everything outside of ports that leads to um, making arrests or disruption of drug flows within ports or through ports. Um, so most of the time, police work does not happen in the port at all. It happens elsewhere through intelligence gathering that as the port as a center. Um, and to um, talk about your the randomness, uh, about three up to five percent of containers are checked uh, ever in each port. So it's really it, you never count. No one counts on random searches. Random searches are just luck strikes. Um, and yes, the the research, my research at least, has always been qualitative. I wouldn't do it any other way. Um, and yeah, so looking at data that has already been um, number data that has already been done by others is just the beginning of research in my case. Thanks, Anna. Uh, Ruggiero, do you want to speak a little bit uh, about the methodology of the report? Yeah, no, starting from, 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 the second, uh, from the second question, yes, as, uh, as well, uh, we uh, relied on qualitative methods, absolutely. Um, and regarding also the, the first question, I just wanted to add very, very briefly that um, most of the seizures, of course, that we have um, studied and analyzed uh, in, in, our, in the regional ports that, are, uh, that, that we have identified in, in our study, they were nine out of 10, the result, of course, of information sharing between law enforcement authorities, often between the authorities of a transit port, be it in Spain or uh, very likely almost, uh, almost was often the case also Italian customs as well. They were communicating the sort of like red flagging some specific shipments. So it was always so the randomness, as Anna said, it's, uh, it's you cannot rely on that because the numbers are too high. So whenever, especially in big, big, big busts, uh, talking about hundreds of kilograms of whatever illicit substance, it's only uh, thanks to international cooperation between uh, law enforcement on a bilateral basis, very often the case. And this comes from Giulia Romano. Uh, and I think it's a very interesting one. She asks, uh, how does corruption manifest itself within the port system. Uh, how and how much does corruption infect security levels within ports? Anna, over to you. Corruption depends on which corruption we're talking about. If we're talking about individual corruption and people being paid to do something illegal, um, that's one thing. There is another type of corruption, which is being paid to do your job <laughs> uh, in a way that is actually facilitating an illicit actor. And then there is systemic corruption, which obviously means that uh, your activity contributes to um, a, a system in which everyone does the same or a little bit of the same for an overall corrupted activity. So um, corruption in port is um, at every level. It's just more difficult to identify. It's at the level of corporation. Uh, there are some very shady um, complications when you try, try and look at the role of shipping companies and the agreements the shipping company make with um, certain, let's say, owners of ports. But then the, the way down, um, the role of customs, uh, which is always a little bit problematic because customs have in most ports are the only one who are actually able and enabled to open containers and to actually seize 
stuff that is illegally there. So to corrupt um, custom officers is actually extremely important in some cases. And in some other cases, obviously, corruption stops at the basic level, which is port um, workers or checkers or other people with lower uh, level and lower impact. So I think that the issue here, um, corruption manifests like every in every system um, when you have uh, the possibility to change the course of action. Corruption can only work if you have discretion. So identifying who has discretion in a port, and each port might be slightly different in terms of action, will give you some vulnerabilities. If customs are the one who open the containers and customs can, let's say, walk alone or have certain type of um, uh, other uh, capacity, then you'll have customs being the ones that if corrupted will, I don't, I don't use the word infect, but will affect uh, security levels within ports. Um, but security levels in this case um, are about the uh, recording of illicit activities and how much illicit activities are actually understood as such. So it's a, it's an interesting question, but definitely the key word here, I think, um, is that which type of corruption um, in the sense of uh, does it require an action or an inaction from the persons? And more importantly, whether or not this can lead to uh, an illicit activity or a, let's say an oversight. And I think then you have plenty of different uh, opportunities there, but I know that maybe Ruggero will want to say something. Uh, no, just uh, from some evidence from uh, from, from the study. We um, we have observed uh, many different forms, many different acts of corruption. Of course, depending as well on on the ports under analysis, um, these ranges of from petty corruption, so meaning just a bribery of little amount of money to longshoremen or to uh, private security employees that are in charge of securing certain parts or whatever warehouses, both inside and actually outside outside ports. But uh, we have also observed some instances of, um, of more institutionalized, also grand corruption. When it came, for example, we have observed money laundering schemes uh, in, when observing the uh, operations of the board of management of the port of Varna. We have some sort of also like institutionalized systemic, uh, and I would say, um, forms of corruption uh, affecting uh, certain parts of the port uh, of Bard that we have observed. So it really depends, I would say, on on the port under analysis, and also, of course, on on the actors that are that are included. So to each actor, I would say, correspond a specific uh, a specific action to to be done or taken and performed. Actually, not to be performed, as Anna was was pointing out. Thank you. Christina, maybe you want to add something about when uh, you researched copper ports, but also the Danube reverse one. Thanks, Fatuna. I think uh, most information that um, Rogero and Anna shared is also true for copper, actually. And when it comes to the Danube, the, we simply um, don't know enough about it yet. We need to conduct more research and, um, uh, and, and need more information. So I'm sorry, I can't add more at this point. Thank you. Um, so with here uh, now we have also uh, Walter Kemp. Uh, he's the one of the author, in fact, of the Portholes report uh, that was published with us. Um, uh, it was published this year together with Ruggiero. Uh, Walter, in fact, uh, due to some uh, other activities, couldn't not uh, present. But it seems that he has a question and. Uh, 
in, in this session of Q&As. I, I gave Walter the right to talk. Maybe Walter, uh, you could tell us a little bit, how was your experience in, uh, as an author uh, in uh, analyzing the, the ports of Southeastern Europe? And also you could ask uh, the participants if they could help you with your question about the headquarters of Aquapol. Walter? Thanks, Fiona. And I actually just put the question in the chat to make you smile. But I'm sorry I couldn't be on the call. I was I was traveling. This report was really interesting for us in so many different ways, not least because of the methodology. And all the people on this panel were so instrumental in, in making it possible. I um, also very much encourage anyone who's interested in the topic to watch the video, uh, have a look at the visualization when it comes out, read the report. It, I think, breaks ground not only on what we found in Southeastern Europe, but uh, which could be applied to other parts of the world. My, my question was, where's the headquarters of Aquapol? Because we went to talk to the, the water police in Austria, and uh, they mentioned that there's not only Europol and Interpol, there's something called Aquapol, but we never found it. So the search continues. Okay, thank you, Walter. Uh, if somebody in this panel or from the attendees has some information about about uh, Aquapol, please uh, please tell us. I first want to 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 thank the the panelists, but also the attendees, because this was really a very interactive uh, session, and uh, I have enjoyed uh, very much. Thank you all, uh, and hope to to see you in uh, in other events of Global Initiative. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. This talk was just one of 85 from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime. To get access to the rest, head over to oc24.haysummit.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>